Good morning. morning. All right, let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious and loving Father in heaven, we we ask that your spirit will be with us. We thank you for the blessings you provided. We ask that we'll gain insight and wisdom and knowledge into your kingdom and become lights of this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we're doing the last lesson in this study guide, Stewardship Motives of the Heart, and it's called The Result of Stewardship. And the first paragraph states, as stewards, we should live as witnesses of the God we serve, which means that we should exert a powerful influence on those around us, an influence for good. And I thought... And the next paragraph then goes on to state, our story then is not to be isolated from the world around us. Does our story, our witness for God change based on the version of God that we're worshiping? What God do the people at the Westboro Baptist Church of Kansas take to the world? If you know who those are, those are the ones who stand out at funerals of gay people with signs that say, God hates fags and God burns fags in hell. What kind of picture of God are they taking to the world? How are they influencing? What about the person, the Christian, in the name of Jesus, who who shoots an abortion doctor? What about people in the name of Jesus who refuse to get medical care for their children? You think I'm making this stuff up? No, no, no. What about people who, in the name of Jesus, claim that God punishes cities with hurricanes for electing a lesbian mayor? Are they influencing the world around them? What about Christians who seek to get certain senators and governors and presidents and judges appointed in order to legislate their moral views onto others? A study done a few years ago found that there was no difference in ethical behavior between Christian believers and non-believers. Further, the study found that the participants who saw God as compassionate and merciful were more likely to cheat than those who believed God was angry and punitive. The secularists use studies like this to warn against the fallacy of religion. But what does the study actually reveal? It does reveal something quite profound. It reveals that Christianity, by and large, is infected with a false law construct that God's law functions like human law, just a system of rules with no consequence requiring somebody to adjudicate and inflict punishment for. This is how most people view God and his kingdom and his laws. When you believe sin is a legal problem, that it doesn't actually harm you, it just gets you in legal trouble, several problems happen. First, such theories, such legal solutions to the sin problem have no power to change lives. So people go to confession... And they get absolution, they get legal pardon, whether it's confession in the confessional with the priest, whether it's confession on your knees to your high priest in heaven who will then take his blood and put it to your account and you have legal erasure in your record book. Same dynamic is going on. You're looking for some external legal solution for the sin problem. There's no power to change. Thus, your ethical behavior is no different than the people who don't believe in God because there's nothing changing in the motives of the heart. That's the first problem with the legal theories. Second, though, having accepted the false imposed legal view, if you believe God is harsh, then you fear getting punished if you do wrong, and so you're more likely to conform your behavior out of fear of punishment and thus not cheat. But if you believe that the sin problem is legal, and the only problem with sin is you're in legal trouble, and you believe God is merciful, and he actually won't punish you, 
happened? There's what's wrong. And this is what you hear from adolescents in high school. Well, what's wrong with having premarital sex if God will forgive you for it? This is how they think. And this is what the legal problem and the legal lie does. It all changes when you realize God's law. He's the creator. He's the builder of reality. His law is the laws upon which all reality functions, not just physical reality, but psychological reality, moral reality, are built to operate on certain parameters. And when you realize that, then you understand deviation from those parameters. You cannot avoid damage, injury to yourself. It will hurt you. Eventually, if you persist in it, destroy you. Conversely, harmonizing with those design parameters, you can't avoid healing. So I've seen this with adolescents who come to see me, late adolescents, because I don't see anybody under 18, late college students who come to see me who maybe are smoking marijuana, and they think the only problem with marijuana is it's illegal in Tennessee. If I were in Colorado, if I was in California, if I was in Oregon, if I was in Washington, it wouldn't be any problem to smoke marijuana because it's legal there. The only problem is it's illegal. That's what they think. And as long as I don't get caught, there's no problem with smoking marijuana. And so I pull out brain studies and brain scans and show them the difference in brain function that happens when you smoke marijuana. And many of them realize, whoa, you mean even if it's legal and I smoke, I'm still damaging my brain? You can't avoid the damage. Yes, you're still damaging your brain. And then many of them actually start moving in healthier directions when they realize there is a real consequence. Just like not brushing your teeth. Your teeth will decay. See, we must bring people back to understand God, his designs, how he's constructed reality to work, and reject this false legal view that dominates Christianity. The second paragraph, finishing the paragraph, it says, Instead, uh, we are privileged to reflect a better way of living to those who don't know the things that we have been given. Stewardship is the act of thriving while managing God's call to live godly lives. God gives us the skill to live differently than we would live in any other lifestyle on earth. And it is something that others should notice and even uh, ask about. Hence we are told, but sanctify the Lord your God in your hearts and be ready and always to give an answer for every man that asks the reason for the hope within you. <laughs> We're to live our lives so that people notice is what it's saying. That people notice there's something different about you. So would that mean, for instance, that women should not wear pants or cosmetics or jewelry? That's, that's what that means. To some people. <laughs> Or perhaps no bright, col- bright colored clothing. We only wear dark colored clothing. Or maybe we wear a special hat or a full body covering. Or perhaps a uniform, a certain style of uniform, a particular dress that when anybody sees it, they immediately know we belong to a particular church. Is that, is that what this is talking about? We, we, we set ourselves away. Uh, set ourselves apart in some physical way, externally, that people immediately will say, that's a Christian. Is that that what it's talking about? How are we to live differently than the world? To live for others. To be willing to give to others our time, our money, our efforts. To live for self. So we live for others. We, We love our enemies. Think about what that would mean if... Christian principles are actually being practiced in, say, the way we talk about people publicly in this country. Would we hear different things being said in the media, for instance? We love our enemies. If we love our enemies, do we, even when they're doing something wrong, do we publicize it? Do you remember when they came with the woman caught in adultery trying to entrap Jesus? Remember this story? Okay. 
they were trying to trick him so they could either condemn him to the people as not believing the law of Moses or accuse him to the Romans as over, overruling their authority to, to have the death penalty. This is, this is a trap. Jesus knew it was a trap. He also knew the sins of the people who brought, brought the woman. These were his enemies. Did he expose them publicly? Did he reveal all their secret sins? He begins writing in the sand. No names, just the sins. And the people saw what he was writing and they just started disappearing. He protected the reputations of the people trying to kill him. Yeah, but now politically speaking, how do you deal with situations like that when people are murdering people? So you you use the word politically speaking. (laughs) Do we find the New Testament church... Which do you think is, which society do you think abuses human rights more? United States of America, 2018, or Rome, 50 AD? Who abuses human rights more? United States States or Rome in 50 AD? Rome. Rome in 50 AD. When do we, when do we put people in the arena to feed them to lions? When do we have slavery still? They had slavery. We got rid of slavery. Now, back in the time we had slavery, we don't have it anymore. Do you see, there was all types of human rights violations going on, gross things happening. I won't tell you the gross and filthy things happening that the, that the Bible infers in Romans chapter 1, but they were abusive of people in the most vile ways. Do you see Christ, the apostles, petitioning to get a certain senator elected to Rome, the Roman Senate, to get a new governor appointed in Palestine, to get new laws passed, they didn't, they didn't approach. What, what method did they use? They, they, they were at war. The Bible talks about they were at war. But what method did they use? Did they use the method of the beastly systems of planet Earth? Or did they use the method of truth, presented in love, leaving people free, turning the other cheek, loving your enemies, forgiving, compassion, kindness? And in 200 years, what happened to the Roman Empire? Well, it became Christian, by and large. The majority of people became Christian. And so when the majority of people became Christian, there was an astute politician who, <coughs> excuse me, who recognized that. His name was Constantine. And so Constantine politically then politicizes Christianity for political purposes. And the world was converted and we became like Christ and, and the world became a better place. <laughs> Or we went into the dark ages. Because the church began practicing the methods of politics, the methods of deception, the methods of coercion, the methods of using the state to force its will upon other people. This is the method of the beast. The methods of the world, coercion, manipulation, deceit, lies, criticism, abuse, behind-the-scenes attack, politics, making deals, compromising principles to get what you want, using the power of the state to accomplish your goals. The methods of God, truth, love, freedom, kindness, patience, giving, and healthy boundaries. Healthy boundaries meaning you retain governance of yourself. Jesus kept very healthy boundaries. He presented truth and love, and he let people free. If a person calls themselves a Christian, but uses the methods of the world, are they really a Christian? In other words, can you be Christ-like while practicing Satan's methods, even if it's for a good cause? 
For instance, if you believe homosexuality is wrong, notice I said if you believe homosexuality is wrong, homosexual marriage is wrong. Let me say that. If you believe homosexual marriage is wrong, can you be Christ-like by seeking to get laws passed to oppose it? Again, being like Jesus, did Jesus seek to get laws passed to change the practices of Rome? Did Jesus seek... Did, did the apostles seek to get laws passed to change the, the abuses in Rome? And notice, I'm not even talking about laws for something like getting rid of slavery. I'm talking about a law on two consenting people in the privacy of their home and their own relationship and how they want to contractually have their property and, and, and rights for, for decision-making done. Uh, this is... You, You're saying that would be like Christ to move into the conscious will of another person and tell them they are not allowed to have this particular individual be their next of kin. That's Christ-like? Now, you may believe it's wrong, but is it Christ-like to step into their conscience and pass laws to punish them for practicing or living different than you? Or do such methods practice the character of Satan, coercion, force, and such actions are not like Jesus or not Christian? Well, let me ask you this. Does the Bible condemn homosexuality? So what does the Bible condemn in Romans chapter 1? Yes, go ahead. So rather than passing laws and forcing, what you're saying is that we present truth in love and then let people free. Yes, so the question isn't whether the Bible condemns homosexuality. That's not the question. The question is, if you believe it does, and let's just assume it does, I'm not saying that it does, I'm just saying let's take the position that it does. What is the Christ-like method of promoting the principle? Is the method of promoting the principle legislative and coercive? Is that how we promote the gospel message? Is that how we bring people to Jesus? For instance, can you pass a law and maybe even enforce it by putting people in prison and locking them in isolation cells where they cannot physically practice homosexuality. Could could we do that? We physically could do it. We could lock people in cells. We have the ability. We do it all the time. Can we control what's going on in their heart, in their mind? But what is the principle of Christianity? To conform behavior or to bring people to a new heart and right spirit? To have the law written in their heart and mind? To bring every thought into captivity to Jesus Christ? To be renewed in the inner man? Can you bring people to renewal by threatening to punish them if they're not renewed? So is is it Christ-like methods to use the state to promote your conscious view on somebody else? I'm going to suggest to you it's not. It actually is one of the reasons why we're stuck here and the gospel has an enlightened Lord because we're not taking the gospel primarily with the methods of the New Testament church. This is why Christianity is failing the culture war in, in the Western countries because they're using methods that Rome used 2,000 years ago against the church. Rome passed laws against Christianity. Rome passed laws to punish people for practicing Christianity. And then when the reformers came along, Martin Luther, what method did the reformers use? Did the reformers seek to get control of the state to force their beliefs? Or did they go promote beliefs, leaving people free, and the institutional church sought to get the state to punish the reformers? What happened? Reformation get crushed or did it grow? Do we want the principles of Christianity? We can only change hearts with God's methods. Truth, presenting love, leaving people free. Second paragraph, Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, 
It says, godliness is a vast topic. This is what we're talking about, godliness. What does it be like God? Godly people live holy lives. Now that's in governance of self. Can I live a holy life for you? Can you live a holy life by doing the right thing because you're afraid if you don't, you'll get punished for it? Is that a holy life? It's not a holy life. Godliness is a vast topic. Godly people live holy lives because like Christ, with an attitude of devotion and with actions that are pleasing to him, uh, godliness is the evidence of true religion and receives the promise of eternal life. No philosophy, wealth, fame, power, or favor, favored birth offer such a promise. So what is what, is, what does godliness look like? Like, like Jesus. Is there, did you see a difference in Jesus than in, say, the Pharisees of his day? Who was more Christ-like, the Samaritan or the priest and the Levite? Well, who, who worshipped on the right day? Who ate the right foods? Who sacrificed the right sacrifices? Who paid the tithe? Who did the behaviors? Was it the Samaritan? But who was more Christ-like? Am I, am I causing some short circuits in your head? So let me read this to you. Tell, tell me what you think. The Chernobyl explosion, you all remember Chernobyl, that bad thing, um, is one of the most harrowing examples in the history of the danger of nuclear power can expose. But the das- disaster could have been much worse if it wasn't for the action of three men. The situation was as follows. A chamber housing a huge piece of radioactive carbon was in danger of melting right through the floor into a pool of water. If that had happened, when it hit the pool of water, it would cause a massive explosion of steam that would have gone out into the environment and, and, and uh, affected millions of people in the, in the area there. It was quickly decided that someone needed to go into the pool and drain it before the radioactive carbon fell down into where the pool was so there wouldn't be any water for it to hit, and, uh, and uh, thus saving millions of lives from being exposed more than what was exposed. Three men volunteered for the task. Alexei Anenko, uh, Valery Bez- Bezpalov, and Boris Baranov all selflessly opted to leap into the water, which was highly radioactive, and open the valve. Later, they succumbed to massive dose of radiation that they wouldn't have received had they not jumped into the water. Do you see God-likeness in their behavior? Greater love has no man that he give his life for a friend. Is it natural for the sinful heart? Notice I said, here, here's the question. Is it natural, normal, reactively, reflexively? Is it natural for the sinful heart to sacrifice self for others? Can a sinner separated from God and the Spirit and the Holy Spirit act genuinely in selfless ways? No, that's an act of the Spirit. So if we see someone act in love, like this isn't evidence of the Spirit of God working in them. Even if they're agnostic? Even if they don't believe in God? Are we having more short circuits go off? <laughs> so I read, and uh, this morning I read, I was reading the book called Prophets and Kings, and I read uh, this in the book this morning on page uh, 376. Among all nations, kindreds, and tongues, God sees men and women who are praying for light and knowledge. 
Their souls are unsatisfied. Long have they fed on ashes. The enemy of all righteousness has turned them aside and they grope as blind men. But they are honest in heart and desire to learn a better way. Although in the depths of heathenism, notice these aren't Christians praying for more light, in the depths of heathenism, with no knowledge of the written law of God or, nor of His Son, Jesus Christ, they have revealed in manifold ways the working of a divine power on mind and character. At times, those who have no knowledge of God, aside from that which they have received under the operations of divine grace, have been kind to His servants, protecting them at the risk of their own lives. The Holy Spirit is implanting The Holy Spirit is implanting the grace of Christ in the heart of many a noble seeker after truth, quickening his sympathies contrary to his nature, contrary to his former education. The light which lights every man has come into the world is shining in his soul, and this light, if heeded, will guide his feet to the kingdom of God. Hmm. But he's not baptized. He hasn't taken communion. He hasn't said the sinner's prayer and asked Jesus to uh, accept the blood of Jesus for his sin payment in heaven. How, How could this be? Do you believe it's true? Do you think this person is just completely in a fantasy world? Do you agree with what was written here? It doesn't fit, does it? What's more godly? an agnostic who jumps in a radiation-poisoned waters to save others, or the professed Christian who seeks the power of the state to pass laws to punish people who don't practice the way they do. That is not fitting with what we're being told from the pulpit of America. And there was another phrase in the paragraph. What do you think of this phrase? No philosophy offers such a promise. No philosophy. Which do you think is better, religion or philosophy? Well, what is religion? Here's the dictionary definition of religion. A set of beliefs concerning the cause, nature, and purpose of the universe, especially when considered as the creation of a superhuman agency or agencies, usually involving devotional and ritual observances and often containing a moral code governing the conduct of human affairs. What is philosophy? Here's the dictionary definition of philosophy. The rational investigation of truths and principles of being, knowledge, or conduct, a system of principles for the guidance in practical affairs. Well, they don't want us to have a philosophy. Difference between religion and philosophy, if you look at the definitions here, Religion, in addition to seeking to provide answers to the cause and nature of the universe, includes rituals and rules to govern behavior. Philosophy seeks to provide answers to the cause and nature of the universe by identifying principles that guide choices rather than rules and rituals. Hmm. Which do you think is more likely to lead us to God? A system of religion with codified rules or an investigation of truths and principles that life are built and operate upon and lead us to live in harmony with God's designs. Well, for those of you who struggle to actually accept ideas like this, based on the prima facie evidence and reasonableness in themselves, here's a quote from Mel White for you. 
This is out of uh, Christian Education, page 105. The, the study of the Bible will give strength to the intellect. Pause right there and let me ask you a question. When you study the Bible, is it a study of religion or a philosophical endeavor to understand God and his design and his principles? What's the primary thing? Is it a code book of deeds to be done and sins to be shunned? Or is it a revelation of actually God himself so that we understand him and come to a relationship with him and his designs for life? It's not really an either or, is it? I mean, I took a class that. Well, oh, I think it is. Philosophy of religion. I think it is. It's, I don't think the Bible is a code book. Well, no. So you, when you say it's either or, talking about the code book idea? I'm just talking about religion is not divorced from philosophy. You can have. So let me finish the quote. Says the psalmist The entrance of thy word gives light, it gives understanding to the simple. The question has often been asked, should the Bible become become the important book in our schools? It is a precious book, a wonderful book. It is a treasury containing jewels of precious value. It is a history that opens the past centuries. Without the Bible, we should have been left to conjectures and fables in regarding to the occurrences of past ages. Of all the books that have flooded the world, um, be they ever so valuable, the Bible is the book of books and is most deserving of the closest study and attention. It gives not only the history of the creation of the world, but a description of the world to come. It contains instructions concerning wonders of the universe, and and it reveals to our understanding the author of the heavens and the earth. It unfolds a simple and complete system of theology and philosophy. Those who are close students of the Word of God and who obey its instructions and love its plain truths will improve in mind and manners. Notice, she didn't say a system of religion. This author said a system of theology. Now, what is theology? It's the study of God, His nature, His character. Can you be in a religion that actually doesn't even reveal the truth about God? Yes. There's bad religion as well as good religion. So I would just say, our religion, if we, if we like that word, if we want it to be a healthy religion, must be one that includes the philosophy of truth, design law, freedom, openness, to follow and apply the truth, understanding the principles of how life is built to operate, and she, seeking to share those with others. If we have a religion, which I'm perfectly happy with, it has to be a religion that is really a religion based on the philosophy of God's character and his design. People are afraid of philosophy. And that's because, I will tell you, where where the rub comes, religion is almost always practiced under an imperialistic mindset. We have rules. Those rules will be applied to all people. You must adhere to this checklist. Do you believe this, 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 this? And then we have people who set an authority to oversee and police breaches in the rules. We have to punish people or discipline people for the rules. It's very rules-oriented, and it's very, very much... Um, um, specified and prescribed. That's religion. And it's, it's very authoritative. You will see this practice. You'll see it in certain organizations right now. Maybe you know some in which there's arguments over ordination of women. <laughs> you can see that there's certain methods being practiced by certain people in leadership. Authori- not, not present truth and love, leaving people free, but let's practice authoritarianism. Let's make a rule and we're going to enforce and we're going to threaten to punish you if you don't keep our rule. That's religion. Philosophy, on the other hand, 
presents truth and love, leaves people free. And then what happens if you actually breach or deviate from God's design, it becomes self-evident in time. You cannot get healthy and well outside of God's laws. You can't do it in any level, physical, relational, spiritual, psychological. If you're outside of his laws, you will get worse in time. Yes? According to this, what you just said, then I don't know why we need to go into all the world and teach them to observe all things that are Jesus has commanded us. Because they have their philosophies, and God reads the heart, and if they're doing the right thing, loving others, and doing fair things... They will be saved. They don't need to know about Jesus. So are all philosophies equally healthy? Well, the Lord can read the heart, and he will judge them according to how they are behaving. So are all philosophies equally healthy? No. So if they have the wrong philosophy, then that will actually harden their heart, and the Lord reads their heart, and their heart is hard and selfish and fear-ridden, and they won't be saved. So we go to tell them a better understanding. Of- but if they choose the right philosophy and if they demonstrate selfless love to others, then they'll be saved. That's correct. That is correct. Why do we need to go and preach? Because there are a million, maybe not a million, but there's many different philosophies in the world that don't lead to healing. Some people, Romans chapter 2, starting verse 12, those who have not heard the law, the Torah, the scripture, but do by nature the things contained in the law, are a law unto themselves, showing the law has been written on their hearts. Paul is talking about how they learn it, Romans chapter 1, verse 20, God's divine nature is seen in what he has made in nature, so that men are without excuse. So yes, people can when the human instrumentalities are not there to bring the gospel to them, they can see the principles of God as revealed in nature, and they respond to the leading of the Holy Spirit, they will be saved. But it's much more difficult to find that naturalistically. Think about this on a physical level. Can people on their own, in certain lands of the world, or in certain times in history, figure out that brushing their teeth is healthier than not brushing? Can people figure that out by, by observance and life experience? Could they figure that out? Some people did, in fact. You will look, there's people in history that brushed their teeth. It wasn't common, but there were some people that did that. Did they get the benefit from that? If you say, well, they get the benefit from brushing their teeth, why should we tell people about brushing their teeth? Why should we tell them? They can figure it out. They can do it on their own. Why tell them? That's why. Because many people don't know. Yes, yes, if they do these things, they'll get the benefit. But many people don't know about these things. They're in ignorance about it, and so we want to tell them. That's why. Good question. Good question. Thank you. Monday's lesson is talking about contentment. Contentment. There's a bunch of stuff in this lesson I want to get to. Um, What is it and where does it come from? Or should I say, since there's an English teacher in here, from where does it come? Dictionary definition of contentment means a state of being satisfied. A state of being satisfied. That's contentment. A state of being satisfied. I'm satisfied. I'm content. What is it that undermines contentment? I'm going to read you a little out of John chapter 21. See if, see if this gives a clue. This is uh, right after Jesus has asked Peter three times, do you love me, Peter? And Peter finally says, Lord, you know all things. You know my heart. And Jesus then says, feed my sheep. After that, feed my sheep. And this is starting in verse 18 now. I tell you the truth. When you were younger and dressed, uh, you dressed yourself and went uh, where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death which Peter was, uh, by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. 
Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? So it's talking about John. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Pause. Well, I'll read Jesus' answer. Jesus answers, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. The question to Peter, when he looked, what about him? Was that question a temptation to undermine Peter's contentment? What about him? Was Peter comparing himself to someone else? Do you ever lose contentment because you've compared yourself to somebody else? And what's the answer for Jesus? What did Jesus answer Peter? It really doesn't matter what I've gotten planned for him. Are you going to do what I planned for you? So I think one of the keys of contentment is to recognize one's own identity, their own relationship with your higher power, your own calling, your own purpose, your own um, mission for God, regardless of what anybody else is doing. Are you content to fulfill the purpose in God's greater plan? Your purpose in God's greater plan. Are you content with that? Or do you look to others and go, yeah, but they're doing this, but they're doing that. Other things that undermine our contentment? I think loss of perspective. Loss of perspective of what's actually happening. I I like this quotation out of a book called Desire of Ages. It's page 225. It says, God never leads his children otherwise than they would choose to be led if they could see the end from the beginning and discern the glory of the purpose which they are fulfilling as co-workers with him. I love that quote. That, I, 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 I not always think, but then I have to remember. But God can see, and he knows. And I'm going to say, it's okay. Sometimes something starts to happen. I'm, starting to, I'm not really happy about this. Oh, wait. Do I believe this, that if I could see the end from the beginning and knew where God was leading right now, I'd be okay with it? I can tell you a quick story. And in my own life, when I was young, back in my 20s, I had uh, graduated with an associate degree in nursing. I had a job at a... At a uh, town, uh, a hospital here in town, and uh, and I'd been working there like seven months, and I went to visit some friends in the Midwest, and on the way back, there was a big snowstorm, I got caught in the snowstorm, delayed me, I actually put my car in the snow ditch three times, because it was, it was 24 inches in like 24 hours, it's a big snowstorm in the Midwest, and so I missed a shift at work, because I was 24 hours late getting back, and they fired me, they did, they fired me. Local hospital, I won't tell you which one. And, and, I, and I, was, I was young. I went home and cried. I'd never been fired from a job. It hurt my ego, my blossoming ego. And I felt really, really hurt. And I cried. And I cried out, Lord, why did you let this thing? You know, I didn't do anything. I, was, I couldn't control the storm. I, I left on time, blah, blah, blah. You know, all this kind of stuff, whining. <laughs> I got a job at another hospital a week later, following week. You know, nurses get hired pretty easily. And uh, at that hospital, I met somebody who became a good friend. And she was pre-med. And she said, why don't you take pre-med with me? And I did. And I looked back, and that was a turning point that put me on another path that led me to be a doctor and a psychiatrist and all the things I've done. And I say, thank you, God, I got fired from that job. (laughs) He had a plan. He had a vision. He knew that I had the, the wherewithal to become a doctor, but he knew that I needed a little nudge. He knew that I just needed the the little encouragement, and over here I was going to find a friend that was going to be encouraging to me, and I would do it. Well, thank you, God, for that. See, he could see, and if, I, if I'd if have known this then, it's okay. I'm not stressed. 
And because of that experience and this promise and my own growing in the Lord, other things that have come along have been able to handle much easier. So things that can help us with um, contentment, understanding, a larger understanding of reality. As we understand what's happening, it usually brings us more peace, doesn't it? Change in perspective. Uh, refocusing on our, what's ours and what's not ours. What's our response? I'm responsible for this. I'm not responsible for that. Many people are lack contentment because they're wanting an outcome that's not theirs. I, I want to make sure my, my child accepts Jesus. My 37-year-old child to accept Jesus. I want to make sure. Uh, that's not yours. That's theirs. Knowing and trusting God. Other things, spending time with God, meditation, prayer can enhance contentment. Is there a danger, though, that contentment can lead to complacency and undermine our effectiveness as change agents in the world? I'm content. I'm complacent. I'm not changing anything. Is it possible? Well, what's the balance then? I see some furrowed brows. See, the key to the contentment issue here is contentment with one's self. Peace with one's identity. Contentment with one's position, one's calling, one's purpose. This is different than being content with the pain, suffering, distress, evil, and sin in the world. We should not be content with that. We should be discontented with that and long for our heavenly home. And thus we are content with who we are, but discontent with the condition of the world. And this motivates us to action. Tuesday's lesson asks us to read Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. The lesson asks, what crucial, crucial message is there for us, especially in the last part about leaning, not leaning on our own understanding? So I thought about this. <laughs> if we've surrendered ourselves to God, been reborn, had the law written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit, been fully persuaded in our own mind, have experienced the mind of Christ, have had our, our thoughts brought into captivity to Jesus. You know, every one of those I'm, I'm referring to a scripture, right? Does there ever come a time when God's understanding of things is our understanding of things? In other words, this Proverbs 3, 5 mean we will always come to a different understanding with God so that whatever we think, we, shouldn't, we should not do it because it's going to be wrong. We must do the other thing. Because we can't trust our own understanding. We can, uh, our understanding is going to be wrong. Is that what Proverbs 3, 5 says? I think some people might hear it that way. When a person chooses in any aspect of their life to do that which is in harmony with God and his kingdom... Whose understanding are they following? Well, let's, uh, could a person follow God's understanding without themselves understanding it? Could a person do that? Yes, they could. Just like a child, go in here and do this, and the child goes and does it. Yes, God, you said to do it, I'll do it. I'm following your understanding of things. I don't understand, but I'll do it. Yes, that can happen. Could a person follow God's understanding of things, though, because they have come to actually understand it themselves, and they agree with it? Could, could it happen that way? Which do you think God prefers? Which do you think he desires? Yes. I just like to read Desire of Ages, page six sixty eight. All true obedience comes from the heart. It was hard work with Christ. And if we consent, he will still identify himself 
with our thoughts and aims, so blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will, that when obeying him, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses. Did you hear that? So are we leaning then on our own understanding? Hmm, let's keep pressing this idea. Could the passage of Proverbs 3, 5 actually mean this more accurately? Do not lean on your selfish, carnal understanding, but do lean on your Christ-like, godly understanding. Could it mean that? Can a sinner be converted and in their relation with Jesus Christ actually have their own personal understanding of things change? And they can come to understand things the way God wants them to understand it. And it's not simply God's understanding. They now have that understanding too. Which do you think God prefers? Does he want the understanding of God to become our understanding? And does he want it always to be, you know, we don't understand it that way, we just do it because he understands it that way. Here are some quotes. I found this one in actually the Apostles 5.63. If we abide in Christ, if the love of God dwells in the heart, our feelings, our thoughts, our actions will be in harmony with the will of God. Notice, our feelings, our thoughts, our actions will be in harmony with the will of God. The sanctified heart is in harmony with the precepts of God's law. That was an interesting one. But then this one, Fundamentals of Christian Education 538. The Lord wants us to come into harmony with him. If we do this, his spirit can rule our minds. If we have a true understanding, if we have a true understanding, I just like that. Who's understanding? We, okay. Uh, of what constitutes the essential education and endeavor to teach its principles, Christ will help us. He promised his followers that when they should stand before councils and judges, they were not to take thought of what they would speak. I will instruct you, he said. I will guide you. Knowing what is to be taught of God... When words of heavenly wisdom are brought to our mind, we shall distinguish them from our own thoughts. We shall understand them as the words of God, and we shall see the words of God in the words of God wisdom and life and power. Hmm, now that's a little different than the first one. And then there's one more. Christ's Observations 3.11. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart, the will is merged in his will, the mind becomes one with his mind, the thoughts are brought into captivity to him, we live his life. This is what it means to be covered in the robe of righteousness. So tell me, what does all this mean? Lean not to your own understanding. So I'll ask some questions. In our own strength, separate from God, without the help of Jesus or the Holy Spirit, can we have right thinking and trust our understanding? No. When we surrender our hearts and minds to God, to be ruled by the Holy Spirit, do we become robots, computers, puppets who no longer have thoughts, and we only parrot what God tells us? No, both of these extremes are wrong. When we surrender to God, when the Spirit enters the mind and heart, and begins to tra- the Spirit begins to transform us by two powers, the power of love and the power of truth. These are the powers that the Spirit works within us. These powers bring us new insights, new understandings, new ideas upon which we choose to agree or not, But when we do, we accept, we embrace, we apply, we love, we internalize, we take in, then we are being changed. The thoughts remain our thoughts, but now they have, our thoughts have been renewed and cleansed with new wisdom, new truth, new motives, new principles, new desires, such that prejudices are replaced with compassion. Judgmentalism is replaced with mercy. Harshness is replaced with kindness. Resentment is replaced with forgiveness. Dishonesty is replaced with honesty. Selfishness is replaced with love. 
All the goodness, all the righteousness, all the truth, all the love, all the holiness comes from God, not from us. But as we surrender, our understanding, our understanding of reality changes. And over time, we experience the mind of Christ and we live his life. Second paragraph, of course, that's often easier said than done. How often might we intellectually believe in God and his love and care for us and yet worry ourselves sick over something that we are facing? Sometimes the future can appear very scary, at least in our own imaginations. I can tell you, it's one of the things I see in my patients. I tell them all the time, many of my patients come to see me, their primary struggle is they don't know how to govern their own imagination. They will have an emotion, particularly fear, insecurity. And their emotion of insecurity or fear will grab a hold of their imagination. And then we can do imagine future scenarios that have actually not happened in reality in which they're rejected, humiliated, injured, something, something. The people laugh at me, I lose my job. Some, some bad outcome happens. It's not actually happened, but that's their fear. And the imagination runs wild, which only causes more fear, which only fuels more of the negative imagination to get the loops going. So... Before we even resolve the undercurrent, why are you so insecure, why are you so anxious, why are you so fearful, first step is simply learn how to stop the runaway imagination. Just go stop. See, you have the power by volitional choice to direct your imagination. You can imagine, you know, what your living room is going to look like painted blue. I mean, you can direct yourself to imagine anything. Your imagination responds to your free will choices and directives if you so exercise that authority. And so I tell people to step one is just go stop. Stop. One of my professors in residency, one of his rules, he had many rules, but one of his was, if you find yourself in a hole, quit digging. <laughs> if you don't do anything else, just stop. It doesn't get deeper. Okay? So just stop the magic. Stop. That's imaginary. And then I teach them the truth will set you free. What's the truth? Learning how to find what's actually true. Distinguishing true from the fear-ridden imaginary scenarios that are not true. It's a process. When is having anxiety or stressful emotions appropriate, and when is it harmful or injurious? Is it ever appropriate to have stressful, anxious emotions? Yes. In Gethsemane, did Jesus have stressful, anxious emotions? Of course he did. Why was Jesus experiencing these stressful, anxious Did he have a runaway imagination? Or was it real events he was going through? Or was it wrong for Jesus to experience those emotions? How did he cope with them? Did Jesus experience stress and worry about himself? Did Jesus, what's happening to me? Why is this happening? Uh, uh, is God mad at me? Uh, all I've ever done is good. I've only done, th- am I being punished for something I forgot? Did Jesus go through that? No, he didn't do any of that. He knew who he was, but he faced something that was quite horrible in its objective reality. And thus those emotions we burn. For instance, if you're getting a tooth drilled without any numbing medicine, would you would 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 pain be normal or abnormal? Normal. And would your desire maybe intensely emotional desire and stressful desire to avoid that pain be normal or abnormal? Normal. Okay, just a metaphor, but this is what Jesus he's facing something really, really horrible and painful. He had stressful emotions about it. But that's a whole lot different having those emotions to avoid 
uh, a potential painful thing. That's different than sitting in the dentist chair and worrying whether the dentist will like you or not, or whether the person who sat there before you had lice or not, or whether the dental, dentist sterilized the instruments you were using or not, or whether God would count it a sin if you thought a curse word when you felt pain in your mind. <laughs> See, those are not the same things, are they? And many people do this. You guys are laughing at me. <laughs> what kind of things do people worry about? In my practice, most people worry about things that are not their responsibility. Very few of them worry about things that are. For instance, many of my, my patients don't worry about whether they will put their clothes on before they leave the house or not. <laughs> they don't worry about that. They don't worry about whether they'll take a shower or not take a shower. They don't worry about whether they'll brush their teeth. They don't worry about whether they put food on the table for their kids. Whether they will do that. Now, they might worry about whether they have money to buy food. That's a different question. But if they have the food, they won't worry about whether they're going to feed their kids or not. They know they're going to do that. People worry about things that are not theirs. For instance, will I get hired for this job? If somebody has a worry, will I get hired for this job? Is getting hired for the job their responsibility? Yes or no? Partially. Partially? Well, I mean, are you qualified? Do you have the qualifications and stuff for the job? Ah, this is, this is why I'm having this conversation. This is about clarity and boundaries and thinking. It is not their responsibility where they get hired. What is their responsibility? To apply. <laughs> to have the proper credentials necessary for the job. Oh, I applied to be a nurse in a certain state. Now, I'm licensed in Tennessee, but I'm not licensed in that state. Or I applied for you know, medical privileges at a certain hospital in a state that I have no license. Even though I'm a good doctor and licensed in Tennessee, I'm not qualified until I get the license there. See, our responsibility is not what other people do. Our responsibility is in governance of self. self. The decision we make in governance of self. How about people worry about, will that person like me or not? And it might not be romantic. It might be, will they like me at my new job? Will my coworkers like me? Are you responsible for whether coworkers like you or not? Or are you responsible for how you conduct yourself? and how you treat others, how you present yourself. In other words, do you show up bathed and nicely dressed, or do you maybe you know, show up having not bathed for four days? I mean, you can present yourself differently, can't you? Do you have a kind, helpful attitude? Are you critical and negative? you fault funny? you snipey? That's yours. Whether people like you or not, though, that's not yours. Do you know people can not like you for a lot of reasons? In, in psychiatry, it's something called transference. Transference, think of a transfer truck. A transfer truck transfers something from one place to another place. Transference is where emotional baggage is transferred from one historical place in memory in your life and deposited and experienced in another place where it doesn't belong. Have you ever met somebody and the first moment you met them, you either really dislike them or you really like them. You don't even know them, but you had this just sense, I like this person, or I really dislike this person. You ever had that first moment you met them? That's a transference. You don't know them. You don't know whether they're likable. But what happens is they're, they're something about them, whether it's their 
their glasses they're wearing, the shape of their face, the, the, the accent with which they speak, something about them is tapping into some memory, like your second grade teacher, who you loved your second grade teacher, and this person kind of looks like that, and all those positive, warm feelings that, I love this person. And then have you met somebody like that you really liked, and after about two weeks of working with them, you couldn't stand them. See, the first was a transference. Now you're getting to know them for who they are, and then maybe not very likable. So I'm pointing that out because there's many reasons why somebody may not like you. They may not like you because you have the exact same pair of glasses that the molester wore that molested them. And they don't even know why they don't like you. It's not conscious. They see those glasses and every time they run, they get creeped out. Have you done anything wrong? Have you done anything wrong, guys? No, No, you haven't done anything wrong. This stuff happens. You have the same hair color as the person who raped them. This stuff happens. People may not like you. Do you have the capacity to recognize what Jesus said? From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings forth good of the good stored up in him. The evil man brings forth the evil of the evil stored up in him. In other words, other people's behavior tells you about them, not about you. People things worry about people worry about things. Will my airplane land safely? Is that up to them? Will our school get enough students and registration to stay open this year? Is that up to you? Will my child be saved? See, these worries that people worry about, and this is what I see in my prayer, they're worrying about all kinds of stuff in life that they have no direct control over. And the reason they do this, people want to feel safe. They want to feel secure. They, they have some fear, some, 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 something that, that, that they derive security from, and, and, and if they lose it, it would, it would upset them. And so they, they begin to worry about what might happen if they lost that relationship or lost that, that, uh, that, that portfolio or that piece of property. This type of worry fails to be truthful about one's own responsibilities, takes on oneself control over things that are not theirs. Life becomes more stressful, more burdensome. People exhaust and up depressed. Often fails to trust God. And often has a very narrow perspective on what the possibilities of the future are. They narrow it down to one catastrophic imaginary event. Even my patients who use their imagination to imagine p- painful events, <laughs> I do this with them all the time. So you, you've got, you're worried that, um, that you might get fired, uh, or might not get hired for this job. That's one imaginary future. Have you imagined that you might get hired and they are going to offer you twice as much as you actually need? Well, I hadn't imagined that. <laughs> See, people rarely imagine the positives. They all, it seems to always go down the fear-inducing, stressful negatives. It's what they worry about and imagine. And then it talks about how, um, in, the, in the quarterly, it says the following. Um, it asks, how do we trust God? And it answers, by stepping out in faith. Do you know that's a nonsense answer? Because in the Greek New Testament, the word for faith and trust is the exact same word. P-I-S-T-S, pistis. Same word for book. Same one word we translate to two words. So what they're really saying is this. How do we trust God? By trusting God. That's what they're saying. Does that help you? How do you trust God? By trusting him. (laughs) Don't you know? It's a nonsense answer. What is trust actually based upon? And we're going to close with this. There's a lot more in the lesson, but it's based on trustworthiness. I remember a patient who told me that all her friends kept telling her she wouldn't be stressed and wouldn't be worried if she just trusted God. She looked at me and said, Dr. Dennis, I can't do it. And I, she knew I was a Christian. And I looked at her and said, of course you can't. She was shocked. 
I said, let me ask you this. If you were in the mall and a stranger came up to you, tapped you on the shoulder, said, let me have the keys to your car and the keys to your house. You can trust me. Would you give them to him? She said, no way. I said, if you can't trust a stranger with the keys of your car and house, how can you trust a stranger with the keys to your life? That's why life eternal is that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ. Getting to know God, when you know him for who he really is, the trust is what happens because he's so trustworthy. So there are four elements. I'm going to close with this. Four elements to genuine trust. One, the person you're placing your trust in must first genuinely love you more than they love themselves and would sacrifice themselves for you. Thus, they won't betray you, turn on you, or become your enemy. Does God meet this qualification? Yes, he does. And then how much of trust in God is undermined because of legal theologies that ultimately contradict this and put God in the role of the one from whom we must be protected because he will ultimately kill us in the end. This is one of the prima facie, it's one of the reasons why the legal systems undermine trust in God. Because they put God in the role of the one we need to be protected from rather than the one who would never hurt us, never betray us. Two, the other person has demonstrated mature self-governance, the ability to reliably and consistently carry out what they said they would do. Does God meet this qualification? Yes. Three, the other person possesses genuine wisdom and understanding of how reality actually works and operates in harmony with design laws. Does God meet this qualification? Yes. And then the fourth element, the first three together, constitute a being who is trustworthy. The fourth one then, in order to experience trust, is that you have to have actual experience with that being. And when you have the experience and you experience his self-sacrificial love, you experience his mature self-governance and consistency in carrying out all he says we do, and you experience his wisdom, then you come to trust him for yourself. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are love. And you have demonstrated that over and over again, ultimately in sacrificing your life for ours. We also are so thankful that you keep your word. You're consistent. You're reliable. You do what you're going to say and you don't change. And we're thankful that you are wise and you not only built the whole universe, you hold it all together. Help us to know you more, Lord, personally, individually, so that our trust may be automatic, without thought, constant, because we have a deep abiding experience with you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.